All right, let's jump into the Word of God. Genesis 25, selling the birthright. I think most Christians are uh, familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau and how Esau sold out for some soup, man. What's up with that? I've heard of being hungry before. I've heard of hungry man dinners and all that stuff, but really, for some soup? I mean, how long would it take you to make a sandwich? (laughs) Anyway, we're going to study tonight the uh, story of Jacob and Esau. We're going to study and look at the power of the flesh tonight and how we can better deal with it. And we're going to see that in uh, this particular story. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the folks that have come out tonight. Thank you for the air conditioning, Lord. (laughs) We are very grateful for it. So we're just, we're just uh, humbled, Lord, for the modern conveniences. This facility is awesome. It's so good to hear the youth up there praising you, Lord. The beautiful voices of our young people got to go up there just for a couple minutes and just uh, see them, their heart of worship is so awesome. So just thank you for what you're doing upstairs as well. All, and all the kids' classrooms, all of our uh, faithful volunteers for the children and um, everybody who serves you, Lord, so faithfully in all these different ministries, we just want to praise you. We want to lay tonight at your feet. We know you're going to speak tonight because your word is alive. You've already spoken. You've already breathed out the word of God. So let us breathe it in, Lord. Let us take it in and let it go deep into our hearts and shape us and mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at Genesis 25, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 34. 19 through 34. In the case of Esau, Esau's name means hairy, and we'll talk about how furry he actually was. Um, In the case of Esau, he is a man that is talked about in Scripture as a man of the flesh. He's a man that did not seem to care much about spiritual things, and in many ways, he seemed to be kind of a man's man. You know, he was a hunter. He was that kind of dude. He liked to hunt and fish and You know, he was maybe that prototypical man that we can think of. Uh, One commentator I was reading this week called him the ancient mountain man. That's Esau. Then you have Jacob. And and sometimes when people think of Jacob, they think of Jacob as this kind of just mild-mannered, conniving kind of dude, kind of soft, like the cook, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes we get this idea that if you like to cook, you're not a man. If, if, you, uh, if you don't like to hunt, then maybe you're not a man. Look, I like to cook. I don't hunt the things before I cook them. <laughs> I buy them in the store. But look, there's, there's a wider definition of masculinity that I think our world doesn't recognize. And so we have a lot of young people that are getting in trouble because they don't f- feel like they fit into this mold of what a man is supposed to be. So there's people in our world today that are telling them, oh, if you don't fit into that mold, then maybe you, maybe you like guys. No, we don't have to say just because you don't fit into a so-called mold, there's something wrong with you. And the contrast between uh, Jacob and Esau couldn't be wider, and yet they were both, uh, we could call them both men, uh, man's men, but they were just different. So the, the problem was the flesh. There's three things that in 1 John 2, 16 and 17 that we wrestle with, and we wrestle with the lust of the the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. All of us wrestle with those things. Some categories are more difficult for some of us than others of us, but we're all going to wrestle with what the Bible calls the flesh. Now, when you hear that, that's a Greek word called sarx. If you're interested in Greek words, it's S-A-R-X. That's the word for flesh. And the flesh speaks, I can give you three definitions, but just to, for our time's sake, the flesh speaks of the remaining unredeemed humanity that still lingers in you. You're saved, but you haven't arrived yet, so you still deal with the flesh. Romans 7, Paul said, there's nothing good dwells in my flesh. Jesus said in Matthew to the uh, apostles, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Right? We all deal with the flesh. In fact, Galatians 5 tells us that the flesh uh, wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary one to another. And the question is, what dominates you the most? 
You know, godliness is a God-dominated life. That's how you could define godliness. Godliness is a God-dominated life. But Esau was called godless. And, you know, that's a sad description of a man. In fact, in the story of Jacob and Esau, um, to my knowledge, Jacob is not condemned for how he connived his brother. It's Esau who is condemned in Scripture. He's called a godless man. He's called a man that despised his birthright. And we, uh, as Christians, we are going to wrestle with this thing called the flesh. In Romans 13, we are told we are to to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We're to make no provision. The word in Romans 13 for provision, it means forethought or supply. We are not to give any forethought to supplying our flesh for the next indulgence. We're not to do that. We're not to put things in our life, things in place that we've kind of set up so that we can just indulge our flesh over and over and over again. The Bible says if you do that, you're just fooling yourself. You're just playing a game. We need to know we are still susceptible to sin as Christians and Esau becomes kind of a a type, a face to put to how not to do this. And there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. This is uh, Genesis 25, and pick it up with me at verse 19. Genesis 25, verse 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac. Uh, Many times, the phrase, the records of the generations, is a Hebrew word called toledots, And it's used 10 times for the primeval history in Genesis, Genesis 5, 1, 6, 9, 10, 1. And it's used for the patriarchs. These are the generations. This is kind of the record of these peoples. The generations of Isaac, he's the son of promise. He's Abraham's son. Notice, Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, or another way to say this is he was Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Just in case you wondered, there were still Semitic people groups, so they did intermarry within the right line, but they were just from a different region. So remember, there was a very careful process to go and find the wife and Abraham made the servant of the Lord or the servant in his household swear to him and he grabbed his thigh remember that and that was swearing on your future children and grandchildren on your posterity on your manhood if you will and he said you are to find a wife for my son from among my peoples and off he went and God guided that process remember and God you know he threw out something he said Lord if this happens then I'll know she's the one and he found Rebecca and Rebecca was willing to give his him a drink and and even give his 10 camels a drink talk about an enterprising lady right Probably took her two hours to get water for all those camels and go down into the well and come back up. And she was a strong woman. And so she took care of it. And uh, there was a moment of decision that came. She was uh, asked this question, will you go with this man? And she had never seen him before. And Rebecca becomes a type of the Christian. Even though we haven't seen Jesus, we what? We love him. And we know that he's waiting to receive us to himself, that where he is there, we may be also. And so Rebecca was sent off. If you go back to chapter 24, look at verse 58, 24, 58. They called Rebecca, the family did, and said to her, will you go with this man? That's a, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Will we follow Jesus Christ? 24, 58, will you go with this man? And he said, or excuse me, she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. And Rebekah, 2461, arose with her maids. They mounted the camels and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and departed. And so now we see that Rebecca leaves her homeland. She decides to follow, sight unseen, and she goes to marry Isaac. And the prophecy that's spoken over her by her family is, may you be thousands and ten thousands. And Isaac already has the promise from Genesis 22 
that in Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed and many nations will come from the loins of Abraham. And Isaac knows the story. And so Isaac was 40 years old back in 2520. He was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. That seems a little older, but that's what he was, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean. And so he gets married at this time and Rebekah may be younger. We don't know for sure what her age was. But I want you to notice that something that happens next. It says in verse 21 of 25, and Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now this is a very truncated verse, but what you need to know is that after they got married, um, we know Isaac was 40 and it is not until 20 years later that they have children. They wait, get this, 20 years to have children. So it's not until Isaac is 60 that this child is born. And we're going to watch Isaac repeat some of the mistakes of his dad, but at least he didn't repeat the Hagar incident. He actually continued to pray and wait upon God. And that's a tough thing to do. I don't know how long you've been praying over something, but have you been praying over something for 20 years? Some of you have. Some of you have been praying for lost family for 20, 30 years. I've heard some stories of people who prayed for someone in their family who didn't know Christ for 30 years, and that person finally became a Christian. It's God's timing. It's, that's all, that all can be a mystery. But, but Isaac has this promise. In fact, he is the son of promise. And if you remember Ishmael at this point in time, how many children did Ishmael have at this point? Remember? Twelve. He had 12 princes, right? And he was not the son of promise. He was the firstborn, but he was not the son of promise. So get this. Imagine if you're Isaac and Rebekah. Everybody's celebrating you. You're the marriage of the century, man. The messianic line's coming through you. And you got no kids for two years, four years, five years, seven years, nine years, 11, 15, 17 years. Now, I've read a little bit on, on this, and there's a couple perspectives. One writer I read this week said uh, he doesn't believe that Isaac prayed until the 20-year mark. I don't think so. I think, this is my own conjecture, but I think it's a pretty educated speculation at least, that I think Isaac and Rebecca were praying this whole time. I think they prayed for 20 years because it was an absolute tragedy in that culture not to have children. And to know that you were in the messianic line, to know that you were the son of promise, to hear the stories from your dad and your mom about what God did and how long they waited and how dad was 100 and mom was 90, that's a miracle. And yet there's this barrenness. And I think we have to ask a question as Christians, why does there seem to be barrenness in these very special set-apart women in the Bible? And these are not the only two. Later on, we're going to see it happen to Rachel. We're going to see it happen to the mother of Samson. We're going to see it happen in the life of Elizabeth before John the Baptist is born. Why barrenness? Why does God make us wait for promises? Can I get a witness? Why, God? <laughs> I can barely wait 20 minutes. Two minutes for my burrito if I'm in line where they have the clock, right? I get impatient. Can you imagine waiting 20 years? You're standing on a promise, but there's barrenness. Why barrenness? Why does then God all of a sudden answer the prayer? Well, I think one thing that we need to remember is that I think God wanted this line of people to rest assured, to be convinced of the fact that anything that was going to happen was not going to come from human effort. And you know what? If we could pull the veil back for a second as Christians, as believers, God may be doing more of that than we realize. God may be doing things, you know, this in, in the prayer life of Isaac, as he prayed for his wife, I'm sure over and over again, and I'm sure you've prayed for things over and over again. God wasn't saying no to Isaac. He was just saying, not yet. Wait. And, you know, it's been said when we pray Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says wait, or he says not yet. And Isaac 
couldn't have known that. And we don't often know that, right? We have no, sometimes we wish there was a little, you know, uh, fine print on the bottom where we could fill in the gaps, but we just don't have it. We just know he waited. She was barren, but then the Lord answered him and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And I'm sure that must have been an incredible time of joy. I'm sure they prayed and prayed and prayed. And once they, they understood that she was pregnant and was showing and and so forth. I'm sure he picked her up and swung her around or, you know, they celebrated and all that stuff. But there's a word that follows the happy times of you're pregnant, wonderful, praise God. He answered our prayer. Do you sometimes pray for something and then you get it and then you go, why did I pray for that? Well, here it comes. Verse 22 says, but the children struggled together within her. Now, this wasn't just simply the fetal movement of a preborn child that's pretty cool and can be kind of freaky, to be honest. When my wife was pregnant with our three, sometimes I would just lay on her belly and, and she would go, oh, 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 there's kicking things going. And sometimes you see a, the print of a foot come through her stomach and you're like, wait, wait, this is a horror movie. I don't know. I don't know if I like this. But anyway, but it was pretty cool to see the movements there, but... Rebecca, when this stuff was happening and there was a struggle together within her, she said, if it is so, why then am I this way, 22? Or to put it in modern vernacular, what in the world is going on inside me? It seems like there's a wrestling match. You see the word struggle in verse 22. It's ratzat in Hebrew. And the word literally means the children smashed themselves inside of her. It's like they were having a fist fight. MMA was happening inside Rebecca. And it wasn't pretty. And, and she was like, whoa, this is not just a normal stuff. These kids are inside of me. And apparently, you know how brothers can be, right? Once they're outside of the womb, they can throw blows. Well, apparently they were doing it inside the womb. There was a wrestling match going on. The word in Hebrew, if you look it up in the lexicon, ratzat, for struggled, uh, the word could be defined as they were cracking each other in pieces, or it can mean to crush or oppress. There was a lot going on in Rebecca, and she wondered, why am I this way? So finally, I think, and I don't know how long this uh, pause was, but she went to inquire of the Lord. Maybe she shared it with her husband. Nobody seemed to know what was going on. And finally, she inquired of the Lord about the struggle. Henry Morris in his commentary on Genesis says these words, there's much we, we do not yet understand concerning the growth of the preborn child. Present day abortionists seem to feel that an embryo is not really a person until its birth even though live births can take place any time over a period of several months before and after the normal gestation period. It is true we cannot remember anything connected with our life before birth, but neither do we remember anything for several years after birth. A newborn babe does have feeling, however, and can exhibit anger, and I've mentioned to you pain in the past, as well as contentment. So why should this not also be true for the period prior to birth? It's a mystery. We don't know everything. But you know what? Before about the age of five, I don't know about how good your memory is. I meet some people and they say, yeah, when I was playing in my crib when I was nine months old, I had an airplane and I used to twirl it around. I'm like, what in the world? I can't remember what I had for breakfast, right? But some people remember, sometimes you remember flashes from your childhood, you know, maybe somewhere where you were playing or a face but I don't know. For most people I talk, seem to talk to at least, you know, about before the age of five, uh, I'm not sure that you remember a whole lot. So I would just recommend to your parents that, you know, don't spend a lot on early birthday parties. They won't remember unless you take good video. But uh, you know what? I know we want to bless our kids. So um, anyway, the struggle. The struggle would be a foretaste of what would happen to these two boys for the rest of their lives. 23 says, the Lord said to her, this is the answer. She says, what's going on in me, Lord? Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. And one, pe one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. What's going on in me, Lord? The answer comes from God. I don't know how it came. 
I don't know if it came through a prophecy. I don't know if the Lord kind of spoke to her heart. I don't know exactly the means of it, but she was told, you have two nations inside of you, and they're warring. They're battling. There's two people groups inside of you, and the older is going to serve the younger. In so many cases in the Bible, it's the younger child who becomes the heir. Uh, Seth, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Joseph. I mean, these were all the youngest in their families in many cases, and they, they became the heir. They, became, they had the rights of the firstborn. And by the way, if you were the firstborn in a family, you had like twice the land and wealth privileges. It was a big deal to be the firstborn. And so when that was taken away, you know, it was, a, it was a tragedy for those who were firstborn. And I think this is a reminder that God doesn't do things the way we do them. God doesn't really care about the nature of how we do things. God has his own choice. Many of you have wrestled with these verses. I'll mention them. Romans 9, 10 through 12 says these words. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, Romans 9, 10 through 12, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice or God's purpose in election, NIV, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Romans 9 is the classic passage on election, predestination, and it causes a lot of people problems. But you have to remember that God chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob, who was the younger to the older would serve him. He renamed him to Israel. God chose everyone in this line, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Read the, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you see some surprising names in there. And God chose that whole line. And here's the beauty of how it works. God, you know, uh, predestination is taught in the Bible, and it means that God chose you as well to be his child. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Some, some people wrestle with that. Well, if he chose me, did he not choose other people? Well, I don't believe in double predestination. That's what some extreme Calvinists hold. They believe that God predestines people to heaven and predestines others to hell. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. But there's something called simultaneous election that you need to know about. I'll remind you, if you heard our Romans 9 study, I threw this out to you as kind of the what I understand is a classical position on predestination and free will. And here's how it works. God does not have to look down a corridor of time and say, he's in, she's in, he's out, she's out. God doesn't look down a corridor of time. He's eternal. So what the classic position holds is what's called simultaneous election. God doesn't look down a corridor of time and select people. God is eternal. The past, present, and future are all before him. So when he wrote a prophecy about Judas, and people get upset with, about the prophecy, Judas, poor Judas, God already said that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend. Judas really didn't have a choice, did he? Well, Judas did have a choice, and his choice was real, but God could write a prophecy about Judas before he ever existed because God lives in the now. There is no past. There is no present or future for God. It's now. So he could write a prophecy about Judas, Judas could exercise his free will in his lifetime, but God's prophecy could not be thwarted because he already knew what Judas was going to do. Does that mean he pulled Judas's arm to do it? No, it just means God already knew it. So it couldn't change. I gave the illustration, and I don't have time to give all of this to you tonight, but go back and listen to the Romans 9 study. And listen to the first 20 minutes where I go over this. And I, I kind of give you the uh, illustration of uh, having a, a ball game uh, on your, uh, uh, what do you call it? It's not a VCR anymore. It's called a DVR. And you hear the final score. And so basically, when you replay that game, no matter how many times you replay that game, the outcome will always be the same. That's how everything is to God. God can't learn anything Everything is now for God. He's never surprised. He never looks at Michael up in heaven and goes, boy, I didn't see that one coming. God lives in the now because he's eternal. That's what's called simultaneous election. Okay, we're going to pause here for a second. 
So um, we have a special time of prayer happening right now. And there's 28 churches involved tonight um, praying specifically over what happened in France where the priest was killed. Uh, His throat was slit by some ISIS people and they held a worship team hostage. And, um, you know, finally, I think police got involved. And I understand that the people who did this were were dealt with by the police. But um, we continue to see this happening over and over and over again in our world. I got a text from a young lady that goes to this fellowship, and she said, please be careful, Pastor Michael. And This world's so crazy, and I appreciate that. Uh, but we know that a lot of this is happening elsewhere. It doesn't mean that we don't have stuff happening here, but you know, wherever the church is persecuted, we don't have to be the same denomination. We don't have to be, you know, agree on everything. But if our brothers or sisters are, are killed or persecuted in another uh, country or whatever, we, we care. It matters to us. And I know it matters to God. In fact, I know that God takes persecution personally. Because in Acts chapter 9, Jesus said to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? So God takes that personally. And, uh, you know, he's told the church to pray. When James was, was killed in Acts 12 by Herod, um, Herod saw that the, the Jewish leadership was pleased with that, so he took Peter into custody. And the church in Acts chapter 12 went into prayer. That's what they did in response to Peter being taken into custody and James, the brother of John, being killed. And they prayed and prayed and prayed, and miraculously enough, an angel came and broke Peter free. Remember that? Angelic jailbreak. Pretty cool. Peter wondered if he was dreaming or having a vision, and the angel said, wake up, Peter. Come on. And out they went, right? Peter showed up at the door where the prayer meeting was. You remember that? Rhoda answers the door. (gasps) Hold on a minute. Runs upstairs. Peter's at the door. Oh, no, no, no. We're just praying here. They were praying for Peter's release. God answered their prayer, and they didn't believe it. And they answered, it's probably his angel. I'd like further explanation on exactly what that means as well. But anyway, that's for another time. But for now, we're going to pray. If you can get down on your knees, please do. If you're not physically able to, don't worry about it. Um, But let's just take a moment to pray. Father God, we do want to just lift up all pastors and priests in our world, all those who lead worship. Um, we want to lift up the body of Christ to you because these are, these are difficult days, Lord, and we don't always know what to do, but we know that you have given us a pattern in Scripture that you tell us that we need to pray. We need to call upon heaven. It doesn't mean that we don't do some practical things as well, but but we do know that we need to call to our God. And we, we ask, Lord, for your mercy to fall upon all those who have been impacted by persecution in our world because many Christians have died at the hands of those who oppose Christianity. The numbers are staggering, really, and alarming. There's been genocides of Christians and other uh, ethnicities and, and belief groups, and there's a lot of terrible stuff going on in our world. And so we're just going to ask, Lord, for your mercy to fall on every person that's been impacted. We ask for your protection over your people. We pray that you'd put a hedge about us, Lord, and give us wisdom in these days to know what we should do and how we should go about your business, Lord. But let it be a reminder to us, Lord, that sometimes persecution has really purified the church. And uh, we don't We certainly don't ask for that, Lord. We don't ask to be persecuted, but we know you've used it in past days to motivate the church to be about your business. And we just pray for your mercy to fall on us, Lord, that uh, the church all over the world will rise up, preach the good news of the gospel. And when we think of Saul, you know, who was an enemy of the church, he became Paul. He was converted, and that does happen. But we know vengeance also belongs to you. And at the end of Acts 12, you killed Herod. An angel of the Lord killed Herod. And, and so, Lord, I, I see some poetic justice in that whole chapter as well. And we're going to leave that in your hands, but we're just going to ask tonight that your mercy would fall, healing to those victims that have to deal with the aftermath of this, Lord. And we pray that it will be a, an opportunity for the gospel, that you'll work it together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, thank you. All right, so the mention of um, this particular scene is in Romans 9, as I mentioned, 10 through 12. And so the war was going on. Pick it up with me, Genesis 25, 24. And it says, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. So that's why I say you pray, you get more than you bargained for. <laughs> they got twins, right? And the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Now, if you look up the name Esau, I think you'll find in many of the lexicons that the name means hairy. And if you look up the name Edom, Edom is the nation that came from Esau, and Edom means red. So I've heard some people call Esau Big Red. That may be pretty close, but he was hairy and red. In fact, um, it's believed from these descriptions that he probably had red hair. And those who are in Western culture picked up the idea of the redheaded stepchild. I think that there's, that's actually where a lot of this kind of stuff comes from. But Esau comes forth. He's born first. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob or Yaakov. Yaakov. And Isaac was, here's the 20 years, 60 years old. He married Rebekah at 40. He was 60 when she gave birth to them. So Esau came forth first, and I don't know if there was a, a nursemaid there or whatever, but I'm sure when she grabbed him, she said, did you already put a blanket on him? Was I, was I not watching? <laughs> he was hairy. He was a furry guy. And uh, Jacob came forth second, and he had a hand on uh, Esau's heel, which is interesting because remember in the womb, what were they doing? They were struggling. There was like a war going on, a precursor of relations between these two nations. And it's interesting to think about this, but some believe that what Jacob was doing by grabbing his brother's heel was trying to pull him back into the womb. Kind of like, I, no, I'm first. You're, you're not going first. Get back in there. So that was a precursor of things to come. And so he was known as, his name has the idea of the heel catcher or the heel grabber. You guys have heard that in terms of his particular name. And so Esau and then Jacob. Uh, some say that his, his name, Yaakov, in Hebrew means to protect. For example, one writer says, those who follow at the heels of the rear guard of an army. So it could mean heel catcher or protector. And uh, we, we don't have a whole lot here because all of a sudden it says, when the boys grew up, 27, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. I want to talk about these two guys for a second. Skillful hunter was Esau. Jacob was a peaceful man. This is an important Hebrew word to write down. It's T-A-A-M, Tom, or Ta'am. And the word in Hebrew for a peaceful man is, uh, here's how you describe it. The word means complete, perfect, one who lacks nothing in physical strength or beauty. It speaks of uh, perfect or upright. It's used in Job 1.8 when God describes Job as a blameless an upright man, there the word is used for blameless. So, uh, you know, in some ancient versions, it called Jacob kind of a plain guy. That's not what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word actually means that he was strong, he was confident, he was able. It's that kind of idea. In fact, the word has the connotation that he was blameless. And so when you think of Jacob, don't think of some soft dude. That's not what he was. He was a strong man, and he, but he seemed to be a man who had other interests, and he stayed close to the tent, while Esau was a mountain man who didn't even need a fur coat. So just so you have that. Um, I had the chance to go to Israel in 2006, and just so you know, we we're planning a trip to Israel in the spring of 2018. So we're going to give you, and we'll have a brochure for you soon. Uh, I'm going to be teaching at a lot of the historical sites. So if you want to go to Israel, you have to save about $4,000. Uh, 
That's what it'll cost. But if you want to go, here's where I'm going with this. Uh, so spring of 2018, start saving your money. You'll have about a year and a half to save. Um, you'll find something about the uh, Jewish people that is quite amazing. They are tough. They are enterprising people. They are exporting fruits and vegetables all over the world. They're probably the top in the top three or four in technology. They are incredible in um, uh, counterintelligence kind of stuff and protecting their nation. They are a very, very enterprising people. They're a very strong people. You, everybody who's a citizen of Israel must serve in the military for two years, male and female, no exceptions. So if you, may, you meet a lady in the restaurant and she's working in the restaurant, she's been in the military for two years. And you know it. They're nice, very, very sweet people, but they're tough. You're like, can I have another carrot? All right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Now, Isaac loved Esau because, now this is is uh, how not to parent 101 right here. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Boy, I love that kid. He's always killing things. It's great. And then we come back and we roast him together. We kick back. He's a great kid. Hunter. Harry. <laughs> Love that boy. Man, we have great dinners together. That's the uh, deeply spiritual father, Isaac, son of promise, because he had a taste for game. But Rebecca, who did she love? She loved Jacob. Now, I want to mention this. I don't think this means that they didn't love the other children. I think this just means they had more love for the particular kids. So this is, this is obviously a big mistake in parenting to show favoritism. But you know what? Humans are humans, and this, unfortunately, is what often happens. So... Esau, one writer says, was a likable guy, but he was a fleshly man. Uh, In fact, he forgave Jacob and moved on in chapter 33. We'll see him be gracious to his brother, but he was godless. He was an immoral person. Thomas Carlyle says of Esau, he's the kind of man whom we're in the habit of charitably saying that he is nobody's enemy but his own. But in truth, he is God's enemy because he wastes the splendid manhood which God has given him He's passionate and patient, impulsive, incapable of looking before him, refusing to estimate the worth of anything which does not immediately appeal to his sense, preferring the animal over the spiritual. He's called a profane person. Jacob, on the other hand, seems strong, steady, thinks about things, uh, plans for the future. I don't know what camp you fall in. I don't know if you're a, a person. Maybe you're changing. You know, do you remember that Jacob, um, he has, this is ahead of us, he has that wrestling match one night with God, and he wrestles all night with God, the angel of the Lord, and he won't let go until God does what? I won't let go until you bless me, right? And he holds on. Jacob cared about spiritual things. He cared about birthrights and blessings. He cared about the lineage. He cared about being in connection with God. And his name gets changed from Jacob to Israel. And there are many commentators that believe that Israel means governed by God. And so even though he gets a bad, you know, maybe not a bad rap, I think it's an honest thing that he was a conniver. Still, he, he was more concerned about the spiritual than Esau. And when Jacob had cooked stew, 29, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. So Esau went out, I'm sure early he was hunting, and Jacob decided to make some stew. I don't know what kind of stew it was, but there's a mention of lentils here and so forth. But I'm sure it smelled good. And I have a feeling, this is my own personal view, but I think it will be borne out. That do you know, have you ever been, do you wonder why they put fitness uh, places right next to In-N-Out? I believe that In-N-Out has hired somebody to sit on the top of their building and fan the smell of the food into all the buildings that surround. Because people... You know, it's 10.30. I have a son that works there, and he says at 10.30 in the morning, there's people lined up at the door, and they just come like that. Ah, <laughs> in and out. 
right? Christian-owned company, though. My son works there, so that's good. And it is good food. But here's the thing. I think Jacob planned the timing. You see, we don't have all the details here, but I think he was in the kitchen making the stew, knowing that Esau was coming home. I was like, uh-huh, yeah, and fanning it out. I think there's a little bit of a trap set here for Esau. And he knew how his brother was. Let's go. Came in the door like that. I got to eat. Like a lot of teenagers, if you haven't eaten in 20 minutes, you know, it's the end of the world. So Jacob had cooked up, cooked stew, but he had really cooked up a plan. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Remember, I told you, Edom means red. Man, just give me a bite, bro. <laughs> now, I have three boys at home. Okay? So we'll go and we'll eat somewhere, and leftovers will remain, which is somewhat unique in the household, but it does happen. And they take permanent marker out. I don't know if I can get a witness in the room. But, and they say something like this, on threat of death. <laughs> If you touch these leftover taquitos, you will die. It's one of those plastic containers. <laughs> and you know what ends up happening? They don't eat leftovers most of the time. But dad owns the house. So I go into the refrigerator. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I pay the mortgage. Threat of death. <laughs> Where were you? When I got down on my knees and paid the mortgage to this house, where were you? Anyway, personal time there. Boy, the food just drifted into Esau's nostrils. Oh, brother, man, just a bowl. Come on. <laughs> Give me some of the soup. And Jacob said, first, 31, first, sell me your birthright. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty... It wasn't like, hey, can I take your car for a spin? <laughs> In this case, your camel. You know, none of that. Hey, oh, well, if you want some, <laughs> it's going to cost you. What? Oh, your birthright. <laughs> you will no longer be categorized as the firstborn. How's that sound to you? I actually got a contract prepared right here. Do you need an attorney to read through that? I just prepared that just in case you'd say yes. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. This is not just some light thing. He's asking for an official oath. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. If you have an ESV, it says, sell me your birthright now. Verse 31, and then ESV, verse 33, swear to me now. Jacob is like, I'm closing the deal now. And Esau said, yeah, 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 yeah. So Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And then, you know, you would think that the account would end this way. Thus, Jacob connived his brother into selling his birthright. That's what you might expect to read, but what do you read? Thus what? Esau despised, Hebrew word is bazaar, B-A-Z-A-H. It means to disesteem, to hold in, to con in contempt, to disdain his birthright. He basically decided that his birthright meant nothing, although for him, in this line that he was in, his birthright meant that he was going to really have access to everything, double what his brother would have at least, and he gave it away for a moment of what? Stew? But let me ask you. Turn in your Bible to Hebrews 12. Let me ask you. How many believers do you know who have forfeited their birthright for a moment of pleasure? How many people tonight, you know, and, and when we're in a moment, when, when our flesh is screaming out for satisfaction and we've got tunnel vision, man, we got to know. What do we do? We had a guy call the program today, and he was honest. He said, man, I, ha I have trouble keeping my eyes where my eyes need to be. 
And so we, all, we were given suggestions on, you know, how you deal with the battle. The battle is not easy, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Now, in Hebrews 12, we have the New Testament commentary on Genesis 25. And we'll move quickly through this, but I just want you to see what's happening here. So in Hebrews chapter 12, what's happening is the writer has just told the Hebrew church, don't give up. But just, oh, by the way, God is a disciplining God, and God will discipline the children that he loves. And so this message could be entitled, What to Do When You're Disciplined. Here's what it says, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, in light of God's discipline is the context, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Now, I've underlined the knees that are feeble for personal reasons. I've got knee issues, and some of you may be able to relate to that. And so knees that are feeble are, you know, can be tough. Hands that are weak, you know, sometimes your hands fall down when you're tired. But here the idea is when you've been disciplined, what do you do? Let's say that you've been in a situation where you've been a wayward believer. You've made your mistakes, and God's spanked you, and you know it's God. Now what do you do? Is that it? Do you get called into God's woodshed and he spanks you and it's over? No. Whenever God disciplines, what does he want? He wants your restoration. He wants you to be stronger than you were before. Just like when you, if you would discipline your child, why would you do it? To protect them and to cause them to learn something from the mistake that they made. So it says, therefore, in light of God's discipline, strengthen the hands. Go, here's the idea, go into rehab. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have a surgery, if something happens to you and something gets out of whack, you go and rehabilitate that part of your body. And a doctor can tell you, I can fix that, but your, a lot of your recovery and the strength in that limb will be due to how good you are at rehabilitation, how hard you work, how much you're willing to exercise that part of your body. And it says, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather what? that it be healed. I wrote Jacob in my Bible because he had uh, a limp, you know, he had his hip that was put out of joint. It says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And if you look at verse 15, it talks about this root of bitterness. Now, I think anybody who does anything with your own lawn knows something about weeds. I have weeds everywhere, but I do have a weed whacker. And I do enjoy using it. And I just like, right? And you put on the sunglasses and you just whack those weeds. But here's something I know about weeds. When I whack them, I know something's going to happen. I know I'll be seeing that weed in about two more weeks. Because in order to get rid of weeds, you got to pull them up by the... But that's hard work. I hire people for that. I whack them. <laughs> I don't pull them up. Because have you ever tried to pull up something? Uh, some weeds they have bangs on them, right? You try to pull them, ah, it's terrible, right? So that's one thing I know. If I whack the top of a weed, <laughs> I go, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Didn't deal with the root, but right now things look good. And some of you, that's how you deal with your spiritual life. You whack the weed on the surface, but you don't deal with the root. And so one thing you can know is things can look good for a little while when you do that, but that weed's coming back because you didn't deal with the root. Is there some implication to what God knew about Esau that, you know, there's a couple times as we read on in the story that Esau, he's upset. He said, you conniving brother, you stole the birthright and the blessing. Boo hoo hoo hoo. Dad, isn't there a blessing for me? Dad said, uh, sorry, you gave it away, basically paraphrasing. And a warning comes from the writer of Hebrews. 
Be careful. Because a root of bitterness, and notice it's called 15, a root of bitterness can spring up and cause trouble, not just for you, but many can be defiled by a root of bitterness. Get down to the root, deal with it. You may say, well, how, how do you do that, Pastor Michael? You don't play games. If you have a besetting sin, you deal with it. You put it in the light before God. You get help for that specific thing. You don't play games with it. You deal with the root of it. Otherwise, it's just going to come back. Don't be, he says, an immoral person. This has the idea of sexual immorality or a godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it, he sought for it with tears. You see, the Bible says, see to it that you don't do this. Um, so what does this mean for our spiritual lives? Well, I think it means a whole lot. Because I'm watching many people in the church, um, and I'm not talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church and we're getting statistics on the sad realities of Bible reading. And people are not picking up their Bibles. And they're not going deep with God. And they're not understanding the investment that it takes to be a strong Christian. And so a lot of, a lot of people are, are ending up selling their birthright for a moment of pleasure. We have people who are broken inside the church. Sometimes we're shocked by it. We're like, well, what happened there? Well, it's more than just one thing. And so um, would that we go deep with God so that we have good, deep roots in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you. Um, this, is a, this particular message does make us really contemplate where we are. And thank you for the many wonderful believers that are here tonight. And, and they are anchored to you and they are walking with you. And, and none of us are going to do it perfectly, Lord. We know that. But we know that um, this particular story of Jacob and Esau illustrates um, you know, one man that let the flesh dominate him and he paid some, some deep prices for that. Um, and one man who he certainly wasn't perfect, neither one of these guys are perfect, but, but Jacob uh, did inherit the birthright and the blessing and that was your plan all along. And we know that Jacob tried to manipulate it instead of trusting in you. And there's lessons for us there as well. Oh God, um, I just pray that the appropriate application that you want to make to our lives tonight would just be crystal clear that we're anchored to you, that we're walking with you, that we're not letting momentary pleasure um, that passes so quickly uh, steer us in directions that are not healthy for us and not pleasing to you. So God, help us in our areas of weakness. Uh, I pray over the church tonight. I pray that you'd keep us strong and protected from the evil one. I pray that we'd learn from these stories so that we, we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And I pray that just some fresh living water will flow into the believer's lives tonight, Lord. So we'll walk in the spirit, walk in your light, and experience the, the joy of knowing you closer and closer each day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.